Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. We're continuing in our study of the book of Galatians. And we're going to read verses 11 through 14 of Galatians chapter 2. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look into this very important moment in church history that you would help us to understand the the truths that were involved and uh, their implications for us. And so we give you this time, we pray by your spirit, you would uh, speak to the needs of hearts because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple weeks ago... um, when we were looking at Galatians 1, 10 to 24, I said, the gospel should produce a passion for serving Christ in our lives. It did in Paul's life. And we'll see the reason for Paul's passion in the gospel revealed in our passage this morning. But um, let's do a, a brief review Technology and I. There we go. Um, Galatians has a very straightforward outline. Chapters 1 and 2 are biographical. Paul's defending the gospel that has changed his life. Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal, laying out the message of the gospel, which is you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Chapters 5 and 6 are practical, showing the power of the gospel to change lives. And in chapters 1 and 2, Uh, Paul's defense uh, of the genuineness of his apostolic authority and his message um, are under attack. If we go to the next one. um, The Judaizers are saying, listen, Paul, he's not an apostle like Peter and the others. He wasn't there with the Lord during the Lord's life. He's not a real apostle. And his message isn't quite right. And so Paul is is defending that. And the key verses are chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where it says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor I was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul saying, listen, my gospel was revealed by Christ. And the problem is uh, the, the Galatians are deserting to another gospel. And he's writing to, to counteract these Judaizers that are attacking him. And as they attacked 
uh, his ministry, he says, listen, I'm a servant of Christ. If we go to the next slide. And so he says, listen, my gospel was revealed by Christ, not by man. And to, to defend his apostleship and message, he's going to lay out the chronology of his spiritual life and ministry and the possible opportunities for other influences to it as a series of proofs that his apostleship and message came from Jesus Christ himself. So the first proof is Paul's past life in Judaism. His former life had not taught him the gospel, far from it. Um, Paul's life was marked by a zealous pursuit of the rabbinical traditions and a fanatical persecution of the church and its gospel. Um, we have a little Bichon dog, and my wife has bought a, a sweatshirt for him to wear that says, I am the favorite child. And when my daughter comes home and sees that, it's like a red flag in front of a bull. Paul wanted to be God's favorite child. He wanted to be accepted and approved by God. And the way you do that is you study harder than any of the other rabbinical students. You live harder to keep the law. You're more fanatical, opposing those who are against the law. And Paul that's how Paul lived. He wanted that shirt that said, I'm God's favorite son, because look at all I've done. And he said, that's not where you hear the message, you're saved by faith because of God's grace. There was no grace in my previous life. And so his second proof is um, his earliest Christian activity. On the road to Damascus, Paul received this outward vision of Christ leading to his conversion and his commission as an apostle. And later in Arabia, he had an inner, vision, uh, inner revelation of the full significance of the person and work of Christ. He said, I did not go up to Jerusalem, in verse 17 of chapter 1, to those who were apostles before me. His uh, experience with Christ, he knew he was a full apostle, the same as, as the others. He went out to Arabia, and God uh, revealed to him who Jesus Christ was and the significance of that and, and the gospel. And when he came back from Arabia, Acts chapter 9 says that he began fulfilling his mission by proclaiming in Damascus that Jesus was the Son of God and proving that Jesus was the Messiah. In a third proof, Paul describes his short visit to Jerusalem uh, three years after his conversion. It was a short visit of only 15 days where he only met Peter and James. Paul had to leave Jerusalem because he was preaching uh, the gospel and some of the Jews plotted to end his life. And so the church leaders felt it was best for Paul to to leave the whole area, and he went back to Tarsus. And he says, the Christians in Judea, they heard about me, but they couldn't have picked me out of a lineup because I wasn't there that long. And so there was an opportunity for, for Peter and, and James to really influence his gospel message. It was three years later, and he was there a very short time. And then his fourth proof it's a recounting of his second visit to Jerusalem 
11 years after his first visit. I believe it's when Paul and Barnabas went up there to deliver the famine relief to the church uh, in Jerusalem from the church in Antioch. And Paul said while he was there, he conferred with Peter, James, and John. Uh, he, he and Barnabas shared what was going on in Antioch and what was happening. And he says they contributed nothing uh, to me. They didn't modify my message. They didn't say, no, wait, that's not right. Instead, they extended to him the right hand of fellowship and recognized that uh, Paul had been given a different spirit of ministry than Peter had uh, to the Gentiles. And so Paul's shown that when he finally had contact with the apostles in Jerusalem, he was not subordinate to them, nor were they in disagreement to his message. And so now he's going to put the last piece of his argument in place. Listen, there's not been time for them to change my message. My message came from Christ. My apostleship came from Christ. When I finally did go up and told them of the work I was doing and what I was preaching, they recognized it was perfectly right, extended the right hand of fellowship to me, recognized my ministry uh, to be similar to Peter's uh, from the Lord Jesus. And so that brings us to the next proof, rebuking Peter. If we go to the next gate. Um, when did this occur? We don't know. You will not find this event in the book of Acts. Peter never refers to it in any of his epistles. Paul never writes about it again. It's only to the Galatians because it's significant in this attack on Paul and his ministry and his apostleship. Um, I personally suspect it was after the visit that where they went up in, in Acts chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, where they brought the money from Antioch up to Jerusalem. Because in chapter 12, Peter's thrown in prison. Uh, James, the brother of John, is executed. They're going to execute Peter. He's miraculously set free. And he needs to get out of town for a while. And I think he probably went down to Antioch to visit this church that he had just heard about. And um, it's... I believe it's before the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. The Council of Jerusalem dealt with the Judaizers' issues. If you remember, they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Others in the group said it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. In other words, they were saying, listen, if you're believing in a Jewish Messiah, you've got to become a Jew. So you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep all the law of Moses. And if you don't, some suspected you weren't really saved. And others said, well, you may be saved, but you know you're not on the same level as we are. And so uh, the church met uh, to decide this issue. And in Acts chapter 15... Peter made some very strong statements, I think probably flowing personally out of this event. Uh, Peter said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, 
And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the believers a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So, probably before that happened, my opinion, there's some difference of opinion there. But Peter certainly takes a very strong stand against the Judaizers in, in Acts chapter 15. But Peter has come down to Antioch. Again, we're not exactly totally sure when it was. Verse 11, but when Cephas came down to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. I'm going to publicly rebuke Peter because he was guilty. He stood condemned. Well, what had Peter done? Well, here, look at what the situation is. Verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter come down to visit Antioch. He, Antioch was a church that was part Gentile, part Jews. And the Jews and Gentiles were eating together, very possibly some of the love feasts, some of the church dinners. And so they were eating together. They really weren't concerned about Mosaic kosher laws. Maybe it was like a potluck and they would bring various things. And they were just eating together, enjoying fellowship together. And Peter came down and engaged in that. And then some men came from James. James was because he worked with the Jewish church in Judea, in Jerusalem, James was, was very careful to, to be careful in keeping the Mosaic law to, to uh, not offend his, his Jewish uh, brothers. Uh, and he was kind of the leader of the Jerusalem church. These men didn't come with James' authority. James didn't send them. Probably it is like... Um, if you went somewhere and they said, where are you from? And you said, well, I go to Bethany Bible Chapel. Oh, that's where Caleb goes. You've come down here from Caleb. Well, that's kind of what the situation is. But these men came down and they were of the party of the circumcision. How much uh, Judaism do you have to have as a Gentile? to be saved, and fellowship in the church. Peter, after, in chapter 10 of Acts, uh, God's going to use him to win Cornelius, a Gentile, and his family to Christ. And because there's this division between Jews and Gentiles, God sent him a vision, showing him unclean animals and saying, Peter, arise kill and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. Uh, and God says, what I've cleansed, don't you call unholy. That happened three times. Now, while Peter's thinking about this, a couple of days before, an angel had appeared to Cornelius saying, go uh, get Peter. He's in the house of Simon the Tanner up in Caesarea and have him come down here and he'll tell you how to be saved. And just as soon as the vision's over, these soldiers that uh, Cornelius sent are knocking at the door asking for him. 
And Peter hears their request and puts two and two together and says, well, God wants me to go speak to some Gentiles about salvation. And he comes down and he takes six men with him and he comes down to Cornelius' house and Cornelius shares how an angel told him to contact Peter and Peter says, tells Cornelius about the vision and how God has said he doesn't have partiality, but any person who really wants to fear God and wants God is acceptable to God if he comes to God God's way. And the Gentiles get saved, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they speak in tongues. And, and, and Peter says, well, they have the Holy Spirit, just like God gave us in the upper room at Pentecost. But when he comes back to Jerusalem, the party of the circumcision jump all over Peter. We hear you went to a bunch of Gentiles and ate with them. And Peter says, he tells him about the vision. He calls the six men <laughs> that were there, and he says... He, they told us an angel sent a Cornelius to, to get me to hear this message. They trusted Christ. The spirit came upon them. And they said, okay, well, God's decided to save um, Gentiles. But still this question isn't resolved yet. How much of Judaism do they have to take on to be acceptable? And so Peter got in some hot water earlier. And so when these men arrive, Peter, fearing the party of circumcision, begins to gradually just withdraw from the Gentiles. And pretty soon, the only people he's eating with is Jewish Christians. And the effect of his actions was that all the other Jews stopped eating with the Gentiles. Even Barnabas, who had come down and was so excited about the Gentiles getting saved, he said, cling to Christ. That's the main thing. Even Barnabas is now not eating with Gentiles anymore. And, and what are they saying? Because you don't keep the kosher laws, you really aren't good enough to fellowship with us. And there's going to be a division in the church. There's going to be a Gentile church of Christ over here and a Jewish church of Christ over here. And even worse, Paul knows it's undercutting the gospel because he says in verse 14, um, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Peter was compelling these other Jews by his actions to step away from the Gentiles. He's leaving the Gentiles confused and feeling like, well, maybe we're not really equal to them. Peter's a hypocrite because he's not living by what he knows is the truth. Peter had heard the Lord Jesus say, Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? And that which proceeds, um, but that which proceeds out of a man is what defiles the man. And after listing all the things that come out of the human heart, he says, All these evil things proceed from within 
and defile the man. Peter had had the vision of Acts 10 with its lesson, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And later he had borne the testimony of Cornelius, I most certainly understand now that God uh, is not one to show partiality. So Paul publicly rebukes Peter because Peter's actions were done publicly and were having public consequences. He stood condemned. He had, by his own inconsistent actions, rendered himself guilty. And so Paul knows the truth of the Gospels under attack. And so in chapter 14, he begins his argument. We go to the next slide. Um, Verse... um, 14, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Um, Phillips has paraphrased Paul's question this way. If you who are a Jew do not live like a Jew but like a Gentile, why on earth do you try to make the Gentiles live like Jews? Paul says, listen, how can you compel, how how can you... um, Uh, have this action of where you're compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews. You say, well, how did he compel them? Well, you can't fellowship with us unless you keep the kosher law because you're not good enough. Faith in Christ is not enough. And Paul says, Faith in Christ is enough. But Paul's, Peter's message is faith in Christ is not enough. If you want a fellowship with us because we're on a higher plane, um, you have to keep the kosher laws. So that's what his, his actions were saying. Peter was not only acting contrary to his own convictions... His actions were a clear proclamation that Jewish practices were preferable. Peter, when he had come down, living in his convictions, ate with the Gentiles. But now, because of these these, uh, party of the circumcision, he's changing his his point, uh, his actions. Commentators are uncertain whether verses 15 to 21 were part of Paul's rebuke of Peter or are an elaboration of verse 14 mainly addressed to the Galatians. I I think at least some of it is um, because uh, it's unlikely Paul just said that sentence. But he's, he's got the essence in verse 14. You're living a way that undercuts the gospel because you're saying it's more than Christ is enough. Go to the next slide. Justification is only through faith in Christ. So what's that mean? You'll notice in verse 15, uh, or verse 14, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 15 and 16. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. This 
this verse 16 is the first time this key word justified appears in Galatians. So what is justification? Justification is the act of God by by which he pronounces the sinner who believes in Christ to be righteous. So God takes a sinner who's condemned by the law and because of the work of Christ and his faith in Christ says, no, I declare this person is righteous. This is different than just simple forgiveness. Simple forgiveness would cover past sins, but when you sin again, you would become guilty again. It's different than a pardon because a pardon, while taking away the punishment, leaves you with a record that you're a criminal. Justification is permanent. God has declared you righteous. The law never again can condemn you. And God wipes out the record of your sin. He remembers your sin no more. He, He completely declares you righteous. Go to the next slide. So he... In verses 15 and 16, Paul talks about this justification. Jews by nature, verse 15, we who are Jews by nature are those who were Jews by birth, descendants of Abraham, and who were orthodox, keeping the Jewish religion, had advantages over the Jews or over the Gentiles. Um, Notice he calls them and not sinners among the Gentiles. The, The term sinners and Gentiles were virtually synonymous for the Jews. Um, the Jews, Paul says in Romans, were instructed out of the law. The Gentiles were lawless. We're not like them. We had advantages. We had the law. But even Jewish Christians understood that they had to depend on Christ alone for justification. He says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, we have, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. We came to understand that keeping the law could not bring about God declaring us righteous. We were condemned by the law. We needed a savior. And as Jewish Christians, we came to Jesus Christ and for justification, to be declared right with God. Why? Because no flesh, no one, Jew or Gentile, is justified by the works of the law. And that raises a question which Paul takes up in verses 17 and 19. What is our relationship to the law? Verse 17, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we find ourselves, we ourselves also have been found sinners, is Christ a minister of sin? Since justification by faith eliminated the law, some would say it encouraged sinful living. Would this not make Christ a promoter of sin? And he deals with that more deeply in Romans and he will later in Galatians, but Paul answers with an emphatic no. The first reason is because the phrase seeking to be justified in Christ describes more than conversion. It describes the continuing experience of the Christian. 
Believers are persons who not only exercise faith in Christ at salvation, but it continues. They continue to believe. So Paul says, I can live with those under the law as under the law, and with those who are without the law as without the law, but not without the law of Christ. I still have to believe in Christ. And, and he's going to talk more about that in just a couple verses. Secondly, was forsaking the traditional adherence to all the rules of the Mosaic law and living apart from it actually sin against God? Was it actually a sin against God to eat pork? No. It didn't defile a man. What went into a man doesn't defile a man. It goes into his stomach and is eliminated. God says, rise and eat, Peter. Don't call um, unclean what I have cleansed. What's the real sin? In fact, and so Paul goes on with an emphatic no, may it never be. And then Paul goes on with verse 18. And, and he graciously puts it in first person. He's really talking about Peter. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. The real sin, having realized in Christ that these kosher laws do not separate from God, the, the Mosaic laws and especially the kosher laws and some of those things were given as a wall to protect the Jews and separate them from the Gentiles to keep them until the Lord Jesus came. Paul talks about God has broken down the middle wall partition. If you as a Gentile tried to go into the temple, when, after you got through the court of the Gentiles, there was a three-foot wall there with a few entrances cut into it but it said on that wall if you're a gentile and you cross this wall we will kill you because gentiles were outside the law said gentiles were outside and god tore that wall down and now peter's rebuilding it Peter's saying to these Gentiles, unless you become like us, you're not acceptable. And Peter says, the, Paul says, the real sin here is what Peter did. A wall that God tore down, Peter's raising up. And that's wrong. Why? Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law, so I might live to God. See, reinstating the law is no solution. Why? Because the law condemns sin to death. You want to go out and live by the law? The first time you fail, you're going to a lost eternity. Because the law condemns to death. What do I need? I need to die. And that's exactly what happened, Paul says. <laughs> Through the law and its demand uh, for death for sin, to satisfy the law's um, penalty, I need to die so that I can live 
to God. Have you ever been at a funeral and the man who's in the casket has broken the law but not had his court gate? Did the police come and drag his body out of the casket and haul him to the court? No. The minute you died, the jurisdiction of, of law ended for you. And the minute I die, the laws of the land have no force in my life. And so how does this work out? How can I die and yet live to God? Well, look at the next. That's the message of the gospel. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. This verb is only found five times in New Testament. It's found in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19 of the robbers who were actually crucified on crosses next to the Lord Jesus. They were crucified with Christ. It's used twice of Christians here and in Romans 6.6. 6. When I come as a sinner to the Lord Jesus and believe that God, he was God's son dying on the cross for my sin and I trust him and his work on the cross to satisfy God, God sees me as though I'm hanging on that cross with Jesus Christ. Amen. And this verb crucified with is a perfect verb. It, it has a past action with a continuing result. When a person was crucified, they were crucified, and the continuing result was they were dead. And so I am crucified with Christ. I die. In April of 1961, I entered a little room, George the Sinner, and I received Christ, and George the Sinner died. But look at the next phrase. And it is no longer I, um, I'm sorry. I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But when they came in that room, they didn't find a dead body. Why? Because George the sinner died and was born again as a son of God. And the life I now live, Paul says, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. George, the saint, was born again. Jesus Christ came to live inside me through his spirit, and he imparted to me eternal life. Eternal life is different than everlasting life. Eternal life is the life that bears the character of the eternal one. He gave eternal life to me. But notice what else it says. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Yet Christ doesn't automatically live my life. It's still me who lives my life, who makes the choices. And as I live in the flesh, as I live in this body and in time... He wants me to live by faith in the Son of God. He wants me to trust him and obey him and live in obedience to him. But it's my choice. 
He doesn't automatically control me like a, a robot. He wants me to rely on the Lord Jesus for the divine power to live the Christian life, growing in holiness and Christ-likeness. So he says, listen, the law said, Paul, you've got to die because of your sin. And Paul says, I did. <laughs> I did. And then the resurrection life of Christ changed me, caused me to be born again as a son of God. And the life, and, and so it's Christ who's living in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the son of God. And then notice the next words, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's, there's the passion. Why did Jesus do that? Did Jesus look down and say, well, just, that George Farmer, he's a rascal, but you know, he's, if he gets saved, he'll really do some stuff. No. No, he didn't. It's not conditional. He loved me, and he chose to voluntarily die for me because he loved me so much, he wanted me in heaven. And it doesn't... If what you put in the offering today... Or how you live this week, will that pay back Jesus Christ for his death on the cross? No, it never will. It never, ever will, no matter how good you live. We, he wants to live within us because it's for our good. So we miss the consequences of sin and we gain the, the fruitfulness of, of walking with God and having a Christ-like life. And that's the gospel. When I come to Jesus Christ, I die. And God views me as dead. And all the demands of the law are no longer a claim on my life. And then God causes Christ to live in me. And he gives me the righteousness of God. And he declares me righteous. And the law can never declare me guilty again. And then he gives me the ability, because of his indwelling spirit, to, to live for him. And he wants my heart as I look at the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. Go to the next slide. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. To reinstate a system of human effort would do this. Peter's action said, listen, the Mosaic law is uh, necessary. And if righteousness in some measure comes by obedience to the law, then none of us, it undercuts God's grace. You take it as a gift or you don't get it. And so Paul says, listen, um, salvation is by grace alone, apart from human merit of any kind. And that's too important to compromise. He goes on, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. It was a mistake. I want to end with a story. There was this guy driving down the street, and he comes upon this car parked at the side of the street. This car has cracked windows, it's rusted. 
Uh, obviously, different parts of the car have been replaced and they haven't been repainted, so it's a multitude of colors. In other places, they painted over the rust, trying to make it better. It's beat up. It's a pile of junk. But on that car is a bumper sticker that says, this is not an abandoned car. Our world, and Caleb prayed about it, our world is in terrible shape. And some people would say, God's abandoned us. The cross is God's statement. He has not abandoned this world. And as you go out there and you proclaim the cross and you live by verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As you live by that verse, you are a bumper sticker of God on this world, saying God's not abandoned this world. That's a message this world needs. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You have not abandoned us. We deserve to be abandoned. We have broken your law uh, unconsciously and, and willfully. And yet you loved us. You did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all. What a, what a wonderful Savior. What a, what a loving God. Two things this world desperately needs to know of. So, Lord, let us live as a display of the cross because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.